The Fantasy Animation Podcast is a completely independent production. It is made by experts in the field. Chris is a lecturer in liberal arts and visual cultures education at King's College London and author of The Computer Animated Film, available in all good bookshops. And I, Alex that is, am a senior lecturer in film and media studies at the University of Portsmouth and author of Encountering the Impossible, the fantastic in Hollywood fantasy cinema, available in even better bookshops. We do this podcast to provide audiences with an informative and hopefully entertaining guide through the ways in which you can not only enjoy fantasy and animation, but study it, examine it, explore it, and of course, make it and have a career in it. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello listeners and welcome to another episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. I'm Alex Sargent. And I am Chris Holiday. Chris, we made it to the end of the trilogy. Thank you for bearing through it with me. We are at the final uh, instalment of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Return of the King. Yep. Um, it only took us probably about the same amount of time as it took to make the movies to get through them all. Yeah, well I had a little joke written down which was we finished the trilogy we started a couple of years ago. At least. Yes. And then I put in brackets, to be fair, we've only just finished watching them. Yes. And we didn't even watch the extended editions or whatever version we watched. We watched a three-hour Bearmoth. I thought I thought you, you had suffered enough to Thank uh, you. put you through that. Um, Thank you. Well I enjoyed done. it. I, no, I enjoyed it. Good. Well, yes. Yeah, so we're, we're going to do, do an episode about The Turn of the King now, um, uh, the final instalment. We're going to sort of use it as an opportunity to kind of see if there's anything about The Lord of the Rings we haven't spoken about in our previous episodes. And listeners should go back perhaps and listen to our previous episodes if you want to hear everything we've said up until this point there's an episode on the fellowship way back in the archive somewhere there's an episode yeah, yeah. two towers from about a year ago um and we're going to try between the two of us and unpack this very lengthy film but also kind of use it as a way of i don't know saying goodbye to to to, to the <laughs> yeah. trilogy um of which i uh you know basically started a podcast with you so that uh, to make you watch so i've done it now uh, my, yeah. my work is done yeah uh no as i said i really I enjoy. I find it quite difficult to keep track of the characters in these films, and but it is nice to. And the completest in me wanted to finish this trilogy, and and as you say, we've done it in slightly different ways with different people. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking about music, thinking about kind of Tolkien, I guess, yeah, in fandom himself, Tolkien, fandom. Yeah. So this is perhaps an opportunity to to pull out some things. Certainly, yeah, in relation to the films. Uh, the film in relation to something like you know visual effects and, and, and motion capture and so forth and, and anti-circus and so I, yeah I'm ex- I'm excited to talk about it I'm not entirely sure I, I will do I won't do its justice because I'm still processing and you had to give me um, very nicely you had to give me a sort of ten minute seminar I had an office hour with you before the episode started uh, before, before the screening started I should say where we you sort of very nicely went through some of the characters and and some of the events that had happened in the two films up to this point and that really helped because i sort of yeah i i sat we sat and have just watched it for yeah so this is the three hour version which Mm -hmm. isn't i mean it's long but it's not the longest that exists there are these extended versions out there um 
Uh, but this is this is the theatrical cut. We yep, watched. and I sat there. Oh, okay, so I, and I sat there. Um, enthralled, didn't didn't move, didn't nip to the loo as I thought I was going to do. So yeah, I I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I it, there are things that I I think when 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 I stopped the DVD and you you said something like too many endings question mark that was going to be my first. It sort of ends about five or six times, but we can we can talk about that. Um, it'd be interesting to go through the the plot to see to see if we can, and by we I mean you. And as I said, yeah, put out some things with regards to kind of circus and space and. Um, camera work I thought was quite interesting and location and I asked you during the film um, have you been to New yes. Zealand and I, and I think I mentioned this previous I have and it looks exactly like it does in the, in the films and which is great and wonderful um, so yeah I guess we can start well my, my, my this is the third of the trilogy so I actually had an opening question which, which is what, what this is the third and final well at that point the third and final in the Lord of the Rings um, how is this film um whatever how many years on 20 years on something like this yeah. um what is it is it the good one is it the not as good as the second one is it not quite as good as the i don't really know what the myth the mythology around this third film is so it's an interesting one this because i would argue it is probably the most influential oh okay. um, in the sense that and maybe this is me retrospectively looking at it back at now but there's two reasons why one at the time this is the one that won all the academy awards so this is the oh, this is the one that. that tied with titanic and is it um is it gone with the wind or all about eve for the 11th oscar record okay um, it's the one where jackson wins best director they win best picture and he stands up on the stage and delivers this speech um at the oscars and says i'm just so proud that uh, f- uh, that fantasy is finally being recognized it's finally not an f word that the academy have to do a five second delay with um he makes right. this kind of gag speech um about, so it's the first fantasy film to ever win um an academy award um yeah uh so it's it's influential in that sense yeah it kind of it so industrially culturally yeah, yeah, this is the one. But even okay. at the time, that was seen very much as a, a a nod to the achievement of the trilogy rather than this particular movie. It's, it's Scent of a Woman, it's not The Godfather. Sure, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and I I've think, seen none of those films. Carry I think on. whilst I think this film's still very successful in many ways, and hopefully we'll talk about that, I think it it is the most influential in a bad way in the sense that it is the most third act marvelly. Uh, of them all, um, it's the most CG tastic. It's right. the most tra- uh, cave troll battling, eagle battling, <coughs> goblin yeah. battling, dragon tastic, um, and uh, I would say the least successful of the three. But there's a high bar that I would hold all of them to. What I would what I would say is this one: what one does has, and you've already alluded it to when you were talking about it, is it has that sense of epicness. It really does. But the others kind of just do because of the length. But this one really feels like. An epic. I'm reminded of kind of Sobchak's writing on on the epic, and part of the epic is this kind of phenomenological endurance, right? It's yeah. it's a film. The pleasure of it is to endure it and to sit through it and to have all of this stuff take place in one sitting with you. Um, yeah. So so yeah. I, I, so I think it has that quality. So yeah. uh, I I think the films. I think I really like it, but it's probably the Lord of the Rings film I've seen the least. Um, because I don't think I think I prefer the other two kind of just by personal taste. Yeah, I've seen them all equally. Sure, and that is once. That is once. Um, okay, fine. But yes, so I I thought ha- having to do a bit of 
thinking and revision before the film started i i did really like i thought the set pieces were great um because there's a lot of them uh the the plot is and we can get to the plot and by again we i mean you you can get to the plot not not a lot happens but it feels like there's lots of different um kind of buddy movies that are happening simultaneously that need to and, and, and you know there's a there's the Ocean's Eleven narrative over there and then the buddy cop movie over there and then the, so there's lots of these different sort of ensemble pieces happening and the film does quite a good job of bringing them all together um, I think the knock-on effect of that is that each of those then needs an ending and the film then gives us endings to narrative arcs that I guess in real time, the audience audiences, if they hadn't read the book, would have been like, "Well, that's two years ago." Trying to plot something uh, for me, it was longer, <laughs> longer. So there's a bit of that sort of stuff. But uh, I really liked the the way that it, yeah, the way that it looked. I thought some of the battle sequences were fantastic. I think one of the what the spider sequence, sure. kind of spidery sequence, I thought was really great. Yeah, yeah, yeah really, yeah. really great. And that's often considered one. Of the ah, right, okay. Out, okay um, yeah. One of the battles, I can't remember which one of the half a dozen, where I think one side just steamrollers the other on horses i was like that's really that's what i want from a battle there's a lot of kind of um combat but actually that power that, that I, maybe that's maybe that's what i really liked about it that innate sense of like there's a lot of power behind the film mm -hmm. like real clout and i really yeah, i really liked that um so yeah i think it was it was a, a, an, a, an appropriate ending i'm trying to retrospectively think about what it would have been like in 2008 but it feels like a really um important and uh, very enjoyable kind of ending to a, a sort of brilliant trilogy. Great. Really. Okay. Right. What's so, going on with so, it? <laughs> so the plot. I mean, so we're. Very, I'll do it as briefly as I can. So the, the, I think the key thing to say oh, no, while I do Alex, the, take it long take as you an want. hour and then yeah. we're done. Um, I think the key thing to say is that actually this is an adaptation of one and a half books. It's not an adaptation of just one book. It's actually an adaptation of The Return of the King and basically one half of The Two Towers. Right. Uh, and we can get onto that because there's a lot of plot here. So essentially it's two things are going on at once. Uh, all our characters are split up based on the events of the last two movies. And roughly what we've got is two key plots going on. We've got Frodo, Sam and Gollum still on their way to Mordor, still on their way to Mount Doom to destroy the One Ring. Gollum's becoming increasingly um, dark and, and treacherous. He's trying to drive Sam and Frodo against one another. Yep. Um, and uh, we don't quite know what, because it's not revealed, but there's some something lurking around the corner on the journey that he's leading Frodo towards that we get to all kind of lead him to his doom. Um, so he's trying to, to, to take Sam, remove that position of trust that Sam has had in it, and then ultimately we're going to see if they destroy the One Ring. Spoiler alert, they do. Um, uh, and then the other, which involves the f remaining of the of the fellowships, you know, your, your Aragons, your, Go uh, your, you know, I say Gollum, your Aragons, your Legolasses, your Gimli's, your, your, the rest of the Hobbits, all this sort of stuff, um, trying to defend uh, the key human city of Minas Tirith, um, the capital of the Gondor, uh, people of Gondor, um, from this huge uh, assault from the armies of Mordor. Um, of Sauron's uh, orcs, essentially. Yep. So we have this massive battle um, between orcs and men, uh, between the forces of Gondor and the forces of Mordor, uh, playing out whilst Frodo, Sam, and uh, Gollum try to destroy the One Ring. Yep. Cool. So that kind of dual structure. Yep. Very, very, very Hollywood musical. Very Rick Altman dual focus narrative. We won't love well. it, but. It did make me think of a split, just as you were talking, between kind of narrative and, and spectacle. And I wondered whether or not... Because I really liked the Samwise, Frodo, Gollum sort of 
narrative element. Yes. Um, that because that felt that felt more like that's that's literally like two characters wrestling. Well, in some cases, physically wrestling with God. That's like wrestling with fantasy. That, but that's kind of doing it through character, which I really liked. Kind of a character study of these three. It's very theatrical. I thought the kind of the three of them, all these different set pieces. Mm -hmm. The idea of treachery. I'm thinking of a lot of little plays where you have very small casts and two gang up on another one, or there is a kind of double cross. Very kind of Harold Pinter that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so I really liked that. Um, so I wonder whether whether you had a kind of favourite, just simply because I think one is very narrative and character based and story based, and one is very spectacle based yeah. and very sort of. Yeah, the power comes from that. So I just oh yeah, definitely. I think the Sam's the Sam and Frodo stuff's really great. Yeah, so um, I. I think there are great moments in the other bit, but yeah. uh, overall, it, that one is the most baggy, the most clunky, the most um, characters become almost caricatures of yeah, themselves yeah, and all yeah. sort of stuff. But I think the Frodo, Sam, and Gollum stuff is really, really great. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think and I think there's there's reasons behind that. Sort of that the opposite is true almost in the two towers because they kind of get sidelined as this other stuff starts to engulf right. it. So it's a recorrecting of that. And as I said, actually, the Frodo and Sam stuff benefits in that that is that is one and a half books of plot that the film deals with. So Lord of the Rings fans will know this, but. Um, Two Towers actually very famously ends about halfway through the narrative of the Two Towers, at least for Frodo and Sam. Um, all the stuff in The Return of the King, them climbing up the stairs, Shelob the spider, the spider, in fact, everything up until the point that uh, that Sam sees Frodo um, be carried off by the orcs. Into mm -hmm. thing. All yeah. of that, that is the climax of the Two Towers in the books. Um, so all right. of that stuff... It, so there's a lot of stuff for them to do in this movie, and I think it's really important that that stuff shines through because it keeps it, it keeps that sense of personable within this massive scale of battle, isn't it? Mm. It's a real important moment to take a breath and go back to Frodo and Sam when we're in the middle of you know hundreds of thousands of orcs fighting hundreds of thousands of people um, in these big battles to have a moment of three characters in a in a small cave. Bickering um, really helps, I think. Yeah. No, I like, I, I, and it's a nice partner, presumably, to the sort of um, the, the. This is me butchering, but the, the idea of the the only time that you get those kinds of character studies is actually back in the Shire at the very very beginning, then presumably a little yep. bit at the end. Um, so it's a nice sort of mirroring of. This is the shy of this is the kind of conversation, the kind of relationships that one has in the shy, but it's kind of gone bad. So there's these three of them, that, and they get progressively the characters themselves. Um, and we can talk about the opening of the film as well. But the, the within that plot line, certainly Sam and Frodo get progressively kind of weathered and yeah. beaten and kind of hollowed out, and they become visually more and more like Gollum as the as the film goes on. And I, so I, I so I really liked that. It, just a very sim, just very simple. I'd, I, that that's a really great was a really great narrative kind of thread. Not that I didn't enjoy all of the other stuff. No, the the no. spider, the sort of yeah. Yeah, I agree. And to stay on that narrative, actually, what's also helped by that is the complexity of Gollum within all that equation. And and there's both a technical and kind of um, uh, aesthetic or, or narrative complexity to him in the in the in the two towers. Yeah. Um, Gollum and Smeagol are very much set up of these kind of diametric opposites, right? Smeagol is the innocent uh, buried beneath this kind of monstrous figure of Gollum, and there's this kind of, there's that classic scene in the Two Towers where they two of them have an argument, mm -hmm. um, and Smeagol saying no, we should be nice, and he's saying no, we should eat, we should kill him, um, and that that battle is played out here. That gets much more murky because Smeagol 
is the one manipulating Frodo, right? It's Smeagol's childlikeness, his ability to kind of be meek and mild that is that means he's manipulating Frodo. So we have that that, that character gets more complicated. Yeah. Technically, also, this is probably the first um, example of a CGI character which looks still like a pretty modern CGI mm. character. Two Towers is pretty good. Here, it's it's an even bigger step forward in the mm. facial recognition, in the software. I mean, you're going to probably, hopefully, you've got more to say about this than I am because I don't know a lot about it. Yeah. But if you compare the, even if you compare these two movies, they're only a year apart, it's noticeably different how much more photorealistic Gollum looks like in Return of the King yeah. compared to The Two Towers. And it's really important that that character works in this film yeah. for reasons we'll get on to as we, yeah. as we go through the plot. No, I've, uh, I've got nothing to say about the tech. Let's redo the tech, because this is in some ways Gollum's movie, right? I mean, well, I know, yeah. I know we could have said that about The Two Towers, but this literally starts with Gollum, Andy Circus in close-up. So maybe it's time to put Andy Serkis and Gollum in close up and talk about that just for a few minutes. Yeah. I'm not sure we've quite done justice to that in our in our previous conversation. Yeah. So what's there to say about Gollum that hasn't well, been said? Well, f- first of all, I was surprised. I was surprised that the film did open, and I, in fact, the film started, and I said, "Andy Serkis." It looks like Andy Serkis, yeah, and you went, yeah. "It is Andy Serkis." Okay. So I hadn't realised that I hadn't realised that there was a kind of origin story playing out right at the start of the of the of the film, but an origin story that plays out through a character's transition from human yeah. to digital. So that's a really interesting thing. So you've got an origin story where a human actor, although he is made up um, in a kind of gr- slightly grotesque, but not completely grotesque yeah. way. Yeah, we see him. We see, So it's the story of how Smeagol becomes Gollum, he, yeah. how he finds the ring and murders his friend and takes the ring and kind of runs into the mountains. And we see him slowly become the kind of... Become digital. Become Gollum. Yeah, Becoming yeah, yeah, digital. Yeah. So I thought that was an interesting thing for um, a, a couple of reasons, because it is, it is a kind of ontological shift from kind of pro-filmic, photographic, human in front of the to digital recreation but also it made me think again about motion capture generally and around how kind of physical effects are often seen to augment performance and certainly you within these films and the hobbit films you get a lot of the kind of prosthetics of course you do prosthetic feet prosthetic ears um in camera effects to make gandalf taller than he is force perspective all the kind of, so visual um in camera like prosthetics and things like this are used to and makeup is used to augment a performance whereas digital makeup is often viewed to hide the performance and actually that regression if we can call it that of Andy Serkis from kind of human smeagol to to kind of digital yes. golem is playing with those two poles that they are both equally they are kind of both a character subject to effects one is practical and and sort of fake noses and fake teeth and all this kind of stuff um and then the other is digital but i like the kind of transition between the two do you i'm interested that you're you because we've spoken a bit on other episodes about yeah. this kind of narrative that is really created at this period of like yes it's Gollum. he's just it's just it's just like putting on a, a fake pair of glasses the kind of andy circus yeah. kind of um yeah. centering of circus's performance in the creation of Gollum. yes and it's uh and potential problems of of that particularly in terms of just sort of the attribution of labor yes. right 
And I think very much this that scene is doing that, right? I mean, the scene, very interesting, just a little kind of bit of trivia, that scene was actually a, a scene that was meant to be in the Two Towers. They cut it from the Two Towers. There's going to be like a Gollum flashback at one point, and that was going to be the scene that we saw. Right. And by the t- then they've decided to start the f- Return of the King with it in a kind of like cold prologue-y thing. Yeah, yeah. I can remember that. watching that in the cinema, and there were cheers when everyone saw Andy Serkis's face, because by then... You know who he is. You know, we'd seen all the DVD extras, we'd seen the making ofs, we've seen the interviews, and he had been associated with this character that was such a kind of beloved um, part of the of the Two Towers that that's very much people enjoying him being on screen. And it's an attempt to literally kind of go, inside Gollum, there is this, there is a human, right? There is this, you know, the Smeagol is, is, Smeagol is circus. Uh, Smeagol is trapped in, in this kind of exterior that is... That is Gollum, right? Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I can see what it's trying to do. I guess. Yeah. I guess the question I'm pushing you to think about is: Should it be trying to do that? Okay. So, <laughs> so first, of all, I mean, there's lots and lots of things, and actually, this is a good good film with which to to play with somebody that yeah. these ideas. So, first of all, I think yeah, it's obvious, and there's a number of of, of writers. Um, that have talked about Andy Serkis is this kind of throughout, certainly throughout the 2000s, there are two important figures really that are connected to motion, the development of motion capture. One is the director, Robert Zemeckis. So um, Zemeckis working on A Christmas Carol, um, uh, Polar Express, Beowulf. And the other is, and probably more importantly, is is Andy Serkis. So Tanine Allison has written an article called More Than a Man in a Monkey Suit, uh, which is subtitled Andy Serkis Motion Capture and Digital Realism. And she says throughout the early 2000s, and I'd say alongside Zemeckis Serkis, this is a quote, became the public face of motion capture. So he is, he is obviously a really important um, figure in propelling it is a technique beyond what she calls a kind of novel route to realism and, and spectacle, but also the idea of kind of performance. So Circus himself is the face of um, motion capture as a set of sort of emergent kind of technologies. Um, by that point, probably 2003, I think you're right that the sort of promotions of the promotion of these films and the sort of maybe the, I wouldn't say the backlash, but the sort of desire to reclaim the human as the primary control mechanism of motion capture. Yeah. Well, they're trying to get away from the Jar Jar Binks yeah. uh, problem. By, by, by kind of almost showing the human author of the digital performance, yeah. by having that regression play out then on screen and this is how we went from human to digital it's it, pl- it plays a narrative role but it also plays a kind of industrial cultural role of as exactly as you said he's the face of motion capture there's somebody trapped in in now i think that trapping is also really that feeds reflectively into Gollum as a character so you have the idea of deception and play mm-hmm. and split personality um you have that playing out industrially or te- te- technologically because you because you know the fractured nature of motion capture performance where one thing gets turned into another so it almost Gollum is almost like the perfect motion capture character precisely because that wrestling of identities that he does in this film and he looks at himself in the in the water and the conversations that he has with himself that is kind of reflexively acknowledging these broader debates around who performs the digital image and who performs in motion capture and we talked about this in the footnote episode this sort of myth of authorship it's very rare actually well not very rare but it is rare that the person providing the voice does the movement it's more common for people to provide movement and someone else to do the voice there's no there's no reason why they have to be the same thing unless you really want to push Beowulf or but in you know in, in even Zemeckis is a Christmas Callum we talked about this Tiny Tim who does the movements it's not 
the person who does the voice. You know, there are splits between voice and body. So circus is really important, but I, as I said, that hybridity or that wrestling of identities in the film is something that he, there's, there's something that plays out actually in the discourses around motion capture. Yeah. So I think that's it. That's an important, all this is, and this is motion captures in, certainly in the Hollywood context, three, two or three years old. Um, Zemeckis, uh, sorry, uh, Circus himself kind of goes on, not only, you know, he does, um, he's probably best known for, for people like Colin, for characters like Gollum, but in the uh, King Kong and the Rise of the Planet of the Apes, and he is the he is the person that's become the face of this this Th technology. That's very interesting. Thank because, you very much. Um, yeah, no, and surprisingly, so no, um, <laughs> very interesting um, because I, I struggle actually now, given that it's such a legacy. I'm thinking of like you know all the CGI characters we've had since Gollum. Um, how many of them we could describe as purely kind of good? A good character would be something like the Polar Express in a film which is all motion capture. But even those characters, because of the fantasy of Christmas and you don't know whether the kid's kind of dreaming or there's a sort of ethereal quality, it might be that motion capture does work best when it's, when it's, it's almost reflexively being used to, to play with characters who are... There's a kind of meeting point between mocap and morality. As you said, there's a kind of interesting, not quite human... Uh, you know the, the as you said the office face Than the Thanos problem and all this yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that, that's an interesting thing. There's a sort of thematic quality. Motion capture is often considered in terms of labor and puppetry and aesthetics and uncanniness yes. and realism and convincing movement. When actually there's a kind of a thematic element. It's monstrous. William Brown writes about this in relation to kind of Beowulf. There's a kind of it's a monstrous it's a monstrous technology. So yes. Beowulf, King Kong, Gollum. Um, it's un it's Un, a bit unnerving it's that tension between the human and the non-human so that at the level of production that maybe then yeah. plays into some of the ways it is then used thematically on screen and to bring it back to Gollum that 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 sense of I mean the character is all about that right the sense yeah. of the uncanniness of Gollum as a figure is he a monster is he is he is he like Frodo is the kind of uh, the, the, the kind of dilemma yeah. and to the film's credit and to Tolkien's credit because this is in the source novel it doesn't ever normally when you get characters who are like, oh, are they this or are they that. It settles it by the end of the movie. I don't, you know, the way the the, the, the film climaxes, the way the ring is destroyed, mm -hmm. very much leaves that as a as a there is no it, that liminality remains there until the very end of the until the closing credits because ultimately what destroys the ring, Frodo and God in, in the film. Uh, in the book, in the book, literally, what happens in the book is that uh, Gollum bites Frodo's finger off to yep. get the ring back. He dances in victory, yeah. trips over and falls into the um, okay. into the fire. So it's almost the same in the film. In but the not film, quite. they add a bit of agency to Frodo because it probably would look a bit unsatisfying on screen after nine hours to just have him accidentally fall into a thing. But crucially, what they don't do is it's not that Frodo saves the day. Frodo and Gollum are fighting together for the ring. And they both fall off the edge, and Gollum falls with the ring and dies. So yeah. basically, the ring never loses its power. The ring, ring never loses its yeah. power. No one ever destroys the ring uh, on purpose. Um, and ultimately, Frodo and Gollum are the same agent in that. It's just Frodo happens to survive. Mm. You know. Mm -hmm. uh, so that liminal. So is is Gollum a force for good or a force for evil? So that's unresolved. There's a fun student essay yeah. for someone to write. Yeah. Or blog. <laughs> or blog, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because ultimately, you know, he is... He, he, Gollum, you could argue Gollum is the hero. No, there are probably... There are, I'm sure, fan blogs out there. Gollum could be... You could argue Gollum is the hero of the... Of the 
film. Yeah. Gollum destroys the, without Gollum, you wouldn't. They would know. They would not destroy the ring. No, I was actually. Um, I was thinking about trust then because um, if we're talking, if we're talking about Gollum and motion capture and morality and how those two things that Gollum is this perfect display of motion captures ambivalence. Yeah. let's say that that the idea of trust, physical and ontological. Yeah 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 yeah, 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 yeah. And I guess at that point, industrial. How should we take these sure, films? Sure, How should we sure, take this technology? Sure, so sure. that's really interesting. So Gollum's like the perfect test case yeah. for, um, and then you get a figure like Circus who becomes in the face of, in becoming the face of the technology. There's this, an idea of trust. When Circus then appears in, uh, appears as Caesar in Rise of the Planet of the Apes, you go, oh, I trust him because of the. So there's a kind of. The, well, yeah, except that's also a character that. But but again, so trust is really important because, uh, and it often mediates. There are writers, Sarah Thomas, who have written about kind of. Um, stars and that stars are virtual anyway they are avatars and so they mediate technological technological change I've written about that in terms of de-aging like we want we, we stars become these counterweights to seismic technological change um, they manage it for us we trust ABBA we yep. trust whoever who's who's performing or being digitally manipulated but trust in this film is also plays out through that and that's maybe why I really like that Samwise Frodo and Gollum storyline because it's about it's just about it's this kind of little character study between the three of them yeah. um, and the, those ideas of trust that play out between the two humans and then the two or the two um, hobbits and the digital creation yeah. uh, is also that level of that idea of trust never really leaves motion capture how do we class a lot of writing on motion how do we classify how do we write about it is it puppetry is it true animation um, how do we deal with a film like Happy Feet which we've talked about yeah. um, is it something else the, all these kinds of things so trust is an interesting thing that plays out within the film but it's also some a thread that has continued throughout circus motion capture and all that kind of stuff in the next 20 years interesting interesting Right. Yes. So. So after that short prologue of the film. No. So well, I, well so I, let's. I guess it's, yeah. we're on this storyline now. So I guess maybe we, could, we, we might take. Why don't we take it storyline by storyline, um, if we can make sense of it that way? Um, is there? Is there? The Frodo Sam stuff works because um, because of that moral agency. I think. I think you know we can get on to because I think that this film also and Tolkien also has been. Um, quite rightly subjected to a lot of kind of, you know, uh, criticism in terms of representation, identity politics. Uh, and I think the film is in many ways a very conservative, you know, The Lord of the Rings is a very conservative, mm -hmm. um, a very Tory, uh, uh, you know, uh, fantasy. It's a, it's a story of the love of countryside, of um, rural communities, of... Um, tradition of longevity of you know it's a very talk you know I, I think Tolkien would probably identify with that um it's not a very capitalistic film you know uh capitalistic story I should say you know it's not it's very anti-industry it's very anti uh that kind of thing but it's a very it's very you know folk um story uh where am I going with this right yes but the Frodo and Sam stuff I think um provides a nice counterweight to a lot of those things that we might get into when we when we go back to Minas Tirith and look at all that stuff. But between this, what seems to be quite a blunt battle between good and evil, between mm -hmm. white, white Aragon, king, saviour, and big evil orc with a nasty uh, club foot, yeah. um, we get a story of moral ambivalence, mm -hmm. a story where agency isn't really, is very shared and interdependent, 
you know, I said that Gollum could arguably be the, be the hero of the story. Frodo nominally is the hero of the story. That doesn't, of course, Sam, you know. With, He's my hero. As Frodo says, uh, Frodo wouldn't have got very far without Sam. You know, Sam, Sam literally carries Frodo into the uh, into the fires of Mordor. Yeah. Um, and, and so there's this sense that uh, there's a sense of collective agency that's going on in that storyline as well, whereby there is no clear hero. Frodo, Frodo really doesn't do anything of you know. People talk about everyman characters, um, you know, as in you know, but but Frodo really is that in that he doesn't do, he doesn't do other. His heroism is a one step in front of the other heroism. It's a it's a heroism of survival. It's a he- heroism of of, but it's not a heroism of amiable virtue. You know, he's not particularly he's not he's not stronger. He's not braver. He's not able to fight off the ring more than anyone else. Uh, he's a he he just sort of happens to be the person chosen for this, and mm-hmm. happens to manage to put one foot in front of the other all the way to the volcano, and it happens to destroy the ring. But I think all of that's really good. I think all of that's a really murky, interesting story that kind of imitators of Tolkien never really quite do justice to. Yeah, I was thinking about whether or not whether fantasy, because I think you're going back to your point about epic and and the 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 epic quality of it mm-hmm. is is inc- kind of incredible really uh-huh. and that comes from the kind of crowds and the kind of crowd system uh, and i think that's that's for me that's where there's that kind of split um fantasy films i don't know whether this is true do they often do they often juggle both of those things or the, do they lean more towards i feel like they lean more towards the 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 sort of massive displays of spectacle and the fights And I like the fact that there is space that the film carves out for both of those narratives simultaneously. Um, And but having said all of that, I also really like the spectacle of these huge sequences where you have um, this kind of crowd software. And actually, it's AI software. It's it's programs like Massive or or, um, Denizen. I think it's Massive in this case that artificially create these these moving swarms of. So so for the listeners' benefit, we seem to be moving on to the battles now. Uh, What what is Massive for those who don't know? I mean, we don't have to go over it too much. I think it's been quite well covered in the kind of literature and DVDs of this of this film. But but just talk us through. Don't don't software. watch those things. Listen to sure, it. Listen sure. to, um, so yes, so massive is a there. Are, well, first of all, there are a number of programs that are specifically intended to generate huge kind of crowds. So rather than sort of. Um, animate individual agents within a crowd you can use particular kinds of software to uh copy paste let's say and create these these huge um armies and swarms so i've been really interested in this because a lot of computer animated films right from the the, the start two actually computer animated films released in hollywood numbers two and three ants and a bug's life mm-hmm. are both about colonies and both about a large number of insects doing Cool things cohesively, um, and actually, a lot of these films are about the rogue agent within the colony. So, Flick in A Bug's Life, or Z in Ants. Okay. This is the this is the dance that we all do, but I'm going to do something different. Remy in Ratatouille. Rats do this, but I'll do something different. That's different to the um, Barry B. Benson in B Movie. Bees do this, but what happens if we go? So, it's sort of there's an interesting way of there's a kind of political charge to the use of crap. Anyway, Massive is this program that was first built by a guy called Stephen um, Regulus uh, for Weta, so Weta Digital, yeah. so um, PJ Jackson. And, and you're right to say that, yes, Massive is a really important bit of software that is invented yep. for these movies, but actually, like, 
it, there are lots of different versions of this kind of software. And this Denizen kind of, is another one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We literally was it. Uh, uh, Gladiator was probably the first yeah, yeah, example yeah. of the big crowds, the, the Colosseums, yeah, yeah, life and things yeah. like that. And I don't know what software they use, but like this is the era in which big crowds are born on screen in the way that a fantasy film made in the 1980s, the big battle between thousands of orcs and thousands of men would be happening in, or just off screen and there'd be three extras in the uh, in the thing. Here we can actually see the army and, and that's a sort of digital innovation of this era. Well, it's funny because uh, in, what is it, Attack of, uh, oh, Phantom Menace. So Phantom Menace, the pod race in Phantom Menace. Sure. So that film is 19, started production in 97 but yep. released in 99. Yep. Their crowds are... Uh, yes, I don't think cotton, that, cotton yes, buds right. dipped in paint. Oh, really? They're not digital. They're cotton buds dipped in paint, and you can see lots of behind-the-scenes footage oh, of of all these little lines of. And then you get a year later, you get the Colosseum, and um, I can't. And then a year yeah, after that, we get we get the first Lord of the Rings movie. So, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm just I'm going to quickly in real time Gladiator film crowd system. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, for all these shots, Mill Film provided 70,000 computer generated performers that gesticulated, milled about, and populated the Coliseum. So, Mill Film, okay. um, they're, they're, whoever they are, their software. Anyway, right. so you have a number of different. Um, so, Denizen is one, and yeah, uh, Massive is another. There are, there are other crowd systems uh, are available. And, and this is what I meant about, about the film being influential, probably the most influential visually. Yeah. Because I think this is the thing that, like, we're sort of really in 2024 just coming to the end of, in that that kind of, the spectacle of crowd violence. Yeah. Is, it has become, it got, it, it got quickly swallowed up by Marvel. The crass um, ornament. Huh? The crass ornament. <laughs> very good, very good. Um, uh, yes, it got quickly swallowed up by Marvel, and yep. that's the common thing about Marvel, isn't it? Is that its final descends into crowds fighting other crowds. Yes. Um, <laughs> and perhaps the, prob the kind of backlash against the superhero movies in part a backlash against that kind of spectacle. So I'd be interested in what we do next after that. But but it wasn't born in Iron Man. It was born probably a little bit in Helm's Deep, the Two Towers climax. But really it's this film that has these kind of huge um, crowd-based spectacles of warfare um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I, I'm so I'm all very excited now about crowds. Lovely. Um, for for a couple of reasons, I think one, um, there are so writers within visual effects talk exactly about this phase of um, kind of early two thousands into, um, I guess I. I guess it's yeah, it's the, it's the Lord of the Rings. I'm trying to think of other kind of crowd, kind of crowd-heavy films. I think probably Wally's -E a good example from 2008. I've written a bit about that. Happy Feet, the kind of swarms of, of yeah, okay. anyway. So crowd systems. There are right. Kristen Vissels um, in her in her book talks about the digital multitude, which I can't remember if I would have mentioned on this podcast, which is kind of exactly talking about this kind of spectacle of crowds, digitally enabled crowds, and also kind of tracing it back to. The Mass Ornament and Krakow, Sigrid Krakow writing about kind of cohesiveness. And I think, you know, you could link that to the Hollywood musical to go sure. back to my first reference point of the podcast. Mm -hmm. um, thinking about, yeah, the kind of power of, of the spectacle and the, the kind of the politics of the uniform group. More recently, uh, Erica Balsam from uh, Kings has written uh, an article called uh, The Crowd is Dead, Long Live the Crowd, which... And I've been thinking about in relation to the politics of recent crowds, not only in the terms of pandemic and the tide of kind of gatherings, but also if you think about 
the doctoring of inauguration photographs and the sure. crowds, the difference between the very famously, the difference between the kind of Trump crowd and the Obama crowd and the role of digital effects in thinking about, well, actually crowds are, can I throw in a, a third? I'm do sure it. You've already thought. No, 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 do no it. just jump on the bandwagon. You, you mean use the word swarm, uh, right? When you were describing the massive software, there's also the politics of that kind of crowd, the crowds, of, you know, in terms of mass migration, the crowds yes. of people. I guess my point is, is that is is there? We talked we, we talked with Gollum about the kind of the, the fusing of the political with the technological. Yeah, is part of the the thing about this software is it has a dehumanizing, if, in the same way that the mass ornament did, right? Yeah. Is it has some? It's a spectacle in dehumanize in in dehumanized agents, dehumanized bodies forming a mass, either in terms of in this film, either a, a force, a threatening mass or a heroic, uh, valoric mass. Yeah. But there's something inherent to the the program that creates. That, that copies and, and multiplies and things like that. It's a it's a rhetoric and a, and a, and a technology of dehumanization. Yes, that's throwing that out. No, I think that's right. Happens. If you think about the way that like the woke blob are yeah. used and the way that migrants are migrants are talked about a, a swarm of migrants arriving on our shores. You know, using the language of migration to talk about a disease. These aren't deliberate, you know. Turns out yeah. politicians know what they're... Well, I wouldn't say know what they're talking about, but they talk very talk. deliberately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And so I, I think the sort of... I think the crowd... Certainly as a kind of quote-unquote post-COVID, and Erica talks a little bit about this in her article, um, the, returning to, to the cinema as a space of crowds at the end of... Um, so this is August... Uh, from a, I think last year, um, a couple of years ago, uh, end of August after months of suffering with a small screen, the first two films I saw began with crowd scenes. So Les Miserables and then Tenet is our other example. But the idea of kind of a history of crowd scenes in films um, that now we can create, the, ep the epic is now done on the screen and you can create all these little like using computer programs. But I think there is, there is a kind of real, as, as writers like um, Erica and, and Krakauer as well, who are making these, uh, thinking about films uh, that are that use crowd scenes and crowds politically, there is an interesting, vexed, ambivalent place about the role. Of, yeah, the role of the individual and the kind of the de yeah the dehumanizing of of an individual within a broader swarm or collective, and how you find your place within. I don't know. There's, there's something. Because that's what we do. That's what that's how we are at the moment. We're kind of trying to find your place. You're trying to move through communities, move through a world that isn't built for them. But well, you're you're part of communities, or you're part of crowds, and people reintegrating into crowds and learning how to be part of a crowd again. So, so to bring it back to to Return of the King, I, I asked the question because because I think that when we get onto the narrative of you know the Battle of Pelamore Fields, the bit where they fight the orcs for you. Uh, um, that's where a lot of criticism has been levied at the movies, which, uh, well, has been levied at Tolkien about you know this you know this it's basically a white patriarchal fantasy of colonization. You know the orcs are uh, this kind of uh, other uh, race, evil incarnate that that white men need to defeat. Um, mm. And then the way that is rendered in these sequences has attracted certain critiques. Um, 
I'm thinking because you know the orcs become a swarm quite literally through the way you're describing. Yeah. Um, in the way that Aragorn never does, or the, or, or at least you know the the the, uh, the character he retains his individuality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Um, and also just sort of other little um, uh, you know fig leaves on the top of that, or or or, or no, not fig leaves. Uh, Furnishes on the top of that of of um, I know for example Francis Fe- uh, Pheasant Kelly who's who's a, been a friend of the show uh, uh, has talked a lot about kind of the sequence in the movie where we have the arrival of this son of exotic force from the east and we see these kind of elephant riders emerge out of the distance. Um, uh, an orientalist kind of aesthetic suddenly parades over the film, um, and the and cloaked in this kind of para- paraphernalia of a kind of pan-Asian uh, in a post nine eleven context, uh, and talking about the kind of the way in which the way this uh, dynamic is rendered creates or, or, or draws from social tensions that are not necessarily um, yeah. helpful to indulge, shall we say? Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not persuaded by that reading, but I think it's one worth playing, t- talking through. So I wondered if you had any thoughts on that. I mean, I get you know the crude question is like, is is what we're watching some kind of some sort of white supremacist uh, power fantasy playing out, where where those that dare to be other, those that dare to be. Uh, not physically, you know, orcs are ugly, evil, incarnate, disabled, um, mm-hmm. ephemerate sometimes. You yeah. know, they're, ba- they're basically kind of this this kind of um, litmus uh, or test of like everything that's socially othered. Yes, um, absolutely. Uh, on the screen. Yeah. So, no, uh, no yeah, I, is there, uh, you know, talk to me about I, that. I really, no, I, that that's really interesting. And I like the idea that there's a sort of, the, the, the technology is doing some of this kind of heavy, or at least opens up a reading of thinking about the kinds of characters that are copy-pasted or the kinds of characters that are duplicated and are made, made to be part of swarms versus there's no one quite like... You know, there's kind of gradations of... of you know, you have your big swarms, you yeah. have your, your, your community... Your hob- Hobbits aren't swarms, but they're communities. I, I'm reminded, for example, of like the bit where there's a, there's a whole subplot involving the army of the dead, which we don't yeah. have to get into unless no, you don't to, because no, no. I don't find it very satisfying. No, but, but, um, cool green... Cool green ghosty things. Parts of the Caribbean. Parts of the Caribbean, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and there's a scene where our three heroes, Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli, all run at some orcs and then this swarm of ghosts come out and sort of destroy all the orcs and things like that. But, but but the scene works to kind of punctuate the three individuals in the scene and then as the battle plays on, we get Legolas defeat an elephant and we get all these kind of moments of individual her- heroism mixed with these just shots of swarms fighting one another. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I think there's a kind of... The the, the 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 politics of the crowd, you know, the politics of the crowd, of course, um, that that you know, people like Erica would kind of talk about, and even she talked about kind of football crowds. You know, yeah. During COVID, you weren't allowed to have crowd, but they were then. But then they were simulating crowds by playing. You could listen to a soundtrack over a sure. television. And stuff. So the crowd is obviously really important to to kind of to, to kind of spectacle and belonging and stuff. And I think you're right. In this film, there is something political happening in terms of the characters that remain individual versus and. and and yeah, the the quote unquote type of character that is that is made uh, re- that retains their individuality and is and is the leader or part of a team, but never a swarm, and their exceptionalism versus the the swarms and the hordes and the kinds of um, uh, technologically created 
masses that mm. Kristen Vissel's writing about in her book. Um, the, yeah, the kind of ra- the, the kind of yeah the racial and the ableist narratives that support or play with that as a as a as a, as a conflict between different kinds of bodies. And just to really push this to the extreme, let's do it. Say, I, well, as I say, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll happily mount the counter argument, which is one I probably I probably agree with more if I'm very honest. But I but I, I take it seriously enough to think it should be voiced. Yeah. Um, you know, Tolkien comes out of a, a miasma of different cultural influences around the sort of turn of the 20th century that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm choosing my words very carefully here, um, that in other contexts have been the breeding ground for kind of fascist movements. Um, I'm not saying Tolkien um, is part of that in any way, shape or form. That should be very clear. But you know, if you read social histories of Britain, of Europe, of, of Germany in the early 20s, some of the things that gave birth to kind of to, to fascism across Europe are things like um, a growing interest in medieval society, a, a romanticism for the past, um, a pleasure and a, and, a, and a sort of desire return for it, mm-hmm. a, a glamorization of authoritarianism. Um, you know, Tolkien was pretty... Um, ambivalent on democracy, for example, you know his, his return of the king isn't completely figurative uh, in this movie. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not, I'm not. He's, <laughs> he, he wasn't an anti-democrat, you know, but 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 he's, he's you know, he's, he's certainly a conservative um, uh, figure. Yeah. So all of these things are in the novel and in other worlds, and you know, this is you know, 1880s we get Ivanhoe. 20th century we get kind of uh, this kind of massive love of, of, of medieval culture uh, and this all kind of yeah I guess I'm saying that there are in other people in other people in other contexts the same set of interests that inspired Tolkien to create a magical land inspired others to, to try to create other worlds on earth um, with yeah. much more devastating and horrible consequences. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a, that's a then a story of some hobbits in a ring. Yes. Um, no, no, no. I think there's and and and. So yes, I'm just trying to highlight there are real world consequences when some of these things are taken up by the wrong people. I guess. Yeah. You know. No, I, you. Uh, the only the only thing I, I'll throw in there is I was thinking about when you mentioned the kind of Orientalism and and Fran's work on this this kind of exotic force. Um, there's a book. I must admit, I, I, I have not read it, but I know of it. It's called Techno-Orientalism, which is about the imagina- imagining Asia in speculative fiction, history, and media. And I was thinking about the kind of collision between, and also going to throw in the word tra- transformers, but kind of the collision between technological forces and othering and otherness, all, the, all these this kind of stuff, and, and the, who has access to humanity and all these kinds of things. So I don't really have anything else to add other than um, I, and I know you've written about this, like the kind of, the the, the 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 racial dynamics of of the way that the films construct their uh, communities and the com- and the difference between the way you know the very at a very basic representation one I well the difference between the way the Shire is presenting the kinds of bodies that inhabit the Shire versus the kind of grotesque and clearly kind of racial undertones of some of the character designs in some of these these movies and the voice work as well. Um, I don't really have anything to add other than there's a clear division happening there that is painted very light and dark in, in interesting ways. And that's all I have really to say about Yeah. That. I mean, I, I always say the counter argument that is that... Um, Fantasy is 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 all about the kind of pleasure of liminality, and it's mm-hmm. about using these vessels to do something imaginative with as a spectator. 
I think any 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 embodiment of evil will have a social component to it, no matter yeah. when you create that embodiment of evil, um, and it will involve pernicious and pervasive stereotypes that exist in a culture by which you create it. So there's no doubt in my mind that when Tolkien came up with the orcs, he was drawing on some unconscious biases um, towards um, figures of, you know, I don't want to yeah, start yeah. naming lots and lots of different things he could have been doing, but yes. I, I don't doubt that that happened. What I would like to celebrate or spend more energy thinking about is that, yeah, but because they function as figures of fantasy, that's not often how they're used uh, by the spectator. Mm -hmm. So Tolkien created a Tory fantasy of lost England, um, and in the 1960s and 70s, hippies used it as an expression of counterculturalism. You know, mm -hmm. that's just a small example of the way in which a fantasy can be used by the you by, by its consumer in ways that don't really matter in terms of yeah. who, who created it. I'm sure that's true of all art, but I think there's something liminal about fantasy that means figures of evil and figures of good can be warped and made more malleable than, yeah. than perhaps more representational modes of fiction. Yeah, and it also makes me think of the episode that we did when we did Harry Potter in the Chamber of Secrets when we were talking about the difference between kind of mudbloods and muggles and things sure. and thinking about difference and, and and going, yeah, well, it's about kind of racial difference, isn't it? And, and Jotsna, our, our guest, was like, well, actually, they are both... That those those divisions between mudblood and muggle are both they're both racialized categories of identity, but also they're emptied entirely of racial consciousness, sure. and actually they have nothing to do with race. Insofar, oh well, there the, the, there are more readings available just because we live in a world where where disparity and difference often plays out through race and ethnicity, um, and that's how we often recognize. That's a shorthand to identifying difference. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean mean that every example of difference in movies must therefore be allegorically about race. No, if that makes sense. Yes, so, it does make sense. So she was talking when she when we I think I remember us kind of going, yeah, well, it's kind of an allegory for ra you know race and mudbloods, and she was like, well, actually, no, it's 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 kind of a lot more com complex than that because because of their state because of the maybe the role of fantasy that there's an emptying out of racial consciousness that allows us, and I'm, I'm reminded of work on the cyborg as well that that the cyborg is this liminal in-between figure between the human and the non-human and Don, Donna Haraway very famously said that you know that it's a creature of science fiction as well as social reality and thinking about all different kinds of in-between bodies let's say from um, kind of trans bodies queer queer bodies um, mixed race people writing about them the kind of mulatto cyborg and yeah. and the way that the cyborg is not it's not just about race but it kind of has all these different identities and ways of thinking about difference and and what's really great about the cyborg is that it becomes perhaps usefully available for us to talk in these kind of symbolic terms but it reminded me that it maybe is too, we, we don't necessarily need to jump too quickly into the difference between these two is clearly unfolds along the fault lines of race when there's something else by by virtue of its fantasy that allows for different kinds of readings uh a quote from Tolkien because, uh, hey, why not? Well, he's, he's not here, is he? No. Um, he? He wrote a preface to the second edition of The Lord of the Rings, and in that, uh, his, fil his, his films, his books had sort of been widely interpreted by lots and lots of literary critics, and one of the things it had been interpreted about was the sort of allegory of the Second World War, which it kind of functions as, or, or nuclear war, there, the ring as the nuclear bomb, all these kind of different ways of reading the film. Oh, cool. um, and he said, uh, in response to the suggestions that the, the Lord of the Rings functions as all these different allegories. Uh, the answer is that it doesn't. 
uh, very bombastic Tolkien, Tolkien kind of manner. Oh. It isn't an allegory, and this is the quote. I cordially dislike allegory in all its manifestations and always have done since I grew old enough and weary enough, um, to, sorry, wary enough to detect its uh, presence. I, must pref- I much prefer history, truth or feigned. So he's saying that some of, so they're not allegories of... These are feigned histories. Okay. Um, for which the reader... Not allegories of history. Okay. Well, on that note, I'm no, not going to. No, well, I guess, I guess what I would say is I that I think we can, we can, we can allow the film to be complicated. We can allow our experience of the film to be complicated enough, whereby uh, two things can be true at the same time. Uh, the orcs are racialized, uh, and they are drawing on pernicious stereotypes yes. of race. Uh, whether whether every single one of us has to worry about that is a really big, 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 big question mm. with lots and lots of different answers. Yeah, and actually I think that's... Uh, the risk. And, and says a lot about... Oh, yeah. And I don't mean this in a, in a derogatory way. That will depend on who the readers are and the viewers are as much as it will on what the hell is going on on the screen. Yeah. Well, um, and, and when they're being watched, I guess, as well. Like, and what is, what is uh, critical thinking if not always holding two contradictory things. Sure. Like the, and, and also the, the films, and, and maybe my question... That, that, was, sorry, sorry, just a, yeah, on that on. point, because that's really important, I think that's the point, is that fantasy yes, that's isn't, what I was gonna isn't ask. about that. Like the, 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 the lot, I'm talking about fantasy, PH, as, a, as, a, as, as, a, as an imaginative impulse. Imagination doesn't function with that level of complexity, right? Thought does. Thought can hold two contradictory impulses at once, but a child's fantasy makes things good or bad, mm-hmm. right? So if a film engages with the imagination, it does play with a, with a logic of good and bad, of good versus mm-hmm. evil. What a thinking human being does with those imaginative impulses is a massively complicated question. So because the logic of fantasy functions on screen like this yep. does not mean the logic of fantasy functions off screen. Like so the logic this. of fantasy with an F on screen doesn't mean that the logic of fantasy PH. Yes. There you go. Yes, you should write a book about that. Sure. Did Encounter of the Impossible, uh, the fantastic in Hollywood fantasy uh, cinema. Uh, I can't even remember the name of it, but it's that. Find yeah, it. Yeah. And there's a lovely chapter on all the rings where I talk about some of this stuff. Yeah. Okay. No. Should no, we? Uh, yeah. Go on. No. Do you have anything no, to say about the the, 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 the politics of the of the crowd? N- uh, n- uh, well, n- only insofar as what I really liked about this film was how the crowd. Because you can't have a crowd. A crowd needs to fill space, and actually, that's why I also liked about this film. I thought there was some really interesting. I wrote there's really extreme. Yes, there is kind of canted angles and lots of low angled shots and things. But I thought what what this film, in it, the the use of the crowds and maybe the contrast between the crowd systems and the three Gollum, Sam, and, and Frodo, and having that as two dual narratives, sure. let's say. That drew attention to quite what I found quite stark and dramatic contrasts between vertical space and landscape. There's lots of very wide and there's lots of very tall. And Kristen, who I've mentioned already, has written in her book where she talks about the digital multitude, um, digital effects cinema. She talks about uh, the new verticality uh, and kind of ver- vertical space in, I guess, ho- Hollywood action films, but. The idea that it has been, yeah, of course, there's a new visual logic that's been ushered in by digital technology and Mm -hmm. video games and virtual reality. But she talks about a new verticality of action cinema. If we think about commanding um, heights and kind of sweeps and scenes of like descent and ascent. And the crowds really allow for that to be maximized because crowds stretch across. um, And they are punctuated in the film by really tall 
I can't remember that you mentioned it earlier. The name of the Mimin Mithin the place, the 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 city, Minas Tirith. That's the one. Bless you. Um, (laughs) That one uh, that's very very tall, and they don't film it. They don't film it in a way that you are never going to forget its tallness or its height. Um, And so I quite like some of the expressive camera work that is really thinking about verticality of, of gravity, as Kristen says, and gravity and force and power and so I, re- I really like that the kind of the use of the crowds m- drew attention to the way that the film uses space quite dramatically both in its kind of horizontal landscape form and the expanse of the New Zealand on location kind of shooting and this kind of what Vissel calls this new verticality of action cinema where action is yeah. really happening um, at the you know it's it's happening on all floors of Nakatomi Tower. Sure, sure. <laughs> and the, the the camera makes so much yes. of the virtue of this. And there's lots of sweeping shots. Love up that. Up and down. Love and that. Okay, yeah, 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 okay, yeah, yeah. I love it. Love a virtual camera. Jackson's very good at uh, injecting that kind of sense of the physical into all these big sweepers, uh, yeah. sw- uh, sweeping vistas. I must say, um, he's very good at that. That actually comes across. In a slightly more intimate manner, in that in that in the spider shelob sequence that you mentioned, at the Lo- beginning, yeah, right? that's love a very that virtuoso use of camera. That work. is my people uh, often say quite bluntly, it's sort of it's 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 the horror maker uh, of of Jackson coming back into the fore, and, and to an extent that is true, but it's certainly a sequence where he is allowed to direct and and he takes up the opportunity, right? Uh, yeah. No, because that, that's actually why I wrote extreme Canton angle. I think it's when the spider's stalking yeah. and then finally captures for there's kind of this dizzying perspective. And your sense of geography is kind of all over the place, yeah. really. And the camera kind of moves and you go from almost looking directly up with a bit of Frodo in the bottom right. So I thought that was really cool. And, and yeah, in a film where a lot of this can, stuff can kind of get lost. And, I, and it may, again, made me think whether the two narrative strands are also kind of stylistically different as well. I didn't pay much attention to that. But um, my sense is that could partially be true or whether there's a bit of bleeding between sure um, anyway I don't know vertical yeah. space great interesting we've been going for probably about an hour and, and I've, there's so much more I could say and I don't want to turn this into a podcast that has the same epic quality as um, as the film we're talking about but yeah. it'd be a shame not to cover some of it given go for it no, go opportunity. Um, well let's let's just, just stay on because we talked a lot about that the, the kind of the, the you know the return of the king plot, if you will, um, of of Aragorn returning to the throne of Gondor, of these these big battle sequences. There's essentially two battles, isn't there? For most of the film, there's the battle of what's known as the Battle of Pelamor Fields by Tolkien fans, but basically um, a big siege of, of Minas Tirith, and then there's a final battle. Um, as, yep. At the climax of the movie, which is mentally serves as a decoy for Frodo and Sam to get to the to Mount Doom and destroy the Ring, so yep. essentially two big battles in this movie. I would like to just highlight, for no other reason than I'd like to do it, uh, some of the quieter moments in those big battles because I think there is a lot of battling, and I would cut so, quite a bit of it out if I were. Uh, an editor um, and perhaps that's why I'm not an editor but I think that's where the film gets quite flabby and quite banal actually is where there's you know an orc throwing a cave troll at a dragon and yeah uh, the perspective you've just seen one you've seen them all but there are some really lovely quieter moments in that battle sequence that I'd like to just just, just tick off. Let's dwell on them. Um, I love the bit. I love the the, the the failed attack on Osgiliath. So the kind of the siege. Yeah, Chris is looking at me like he's uh, about to have a stroke. Uh, the, the sort of where the, the, um, so we have this 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 steward king who sort of 
despairing against the world. And he, when he hears the orcs are attacking, he sends his riders out to try to retake a fallen outpost, um, a kind of fortress uh, bit. And he ha- and he sends basically his so- his son and a group of soldiers. And everyone's saying, "Don't do it." Sends him off to death. And you get these soldiers running in vain at the orcs with um, uh, Pippin played by Billy Boyle, singing this kind of lullaby ballad. Yes. And it intersperses three things. It intersperses um, him singing this really quiet, elegiac song, the death of these men as they're sort of needlessly fired down by orcs. Uh, And you get Denethor, the steward king, eating a roast chicken and tomato in the most grotesque way possible. And, and, And that's some, that's some very good filmmaking because it's, it's very visceral. It's very melancholic at the same time. It's bloody, but it's never bloodied on screen. It's it's um, it's deathly, but there's no death on the screen necessarily. Um, there's all these different bodily registers going on, yep. um, and it communicates a, a kind of. This is I said this is a Tory fantasy. It's a Tory fantasy uh, fused with a lot of post-war meditation, and this is very much the kind of Battle of the Somme. Uh, esque mm-hmm. moment almost isn't it soldiers being sent out to death and generals sitting back eating roast chicken and uh, and watching on yeah um, yes it's I very think it's a really really nuanced but really lovely moment yeah. lovely in a kind of you know uh, sad sense isn't there that there's that line in one of the Blackadder goes forth episodes where Haig says something like we'll be right behind you and Blackadder says yes about 400 miles yes um, so there's yes there's that quality to it and the kind of cut the kind of quick cutting and, between and, and you know Tolkien served in the war and a lot this is a lot of this is a kind of reflection on war and and, and you know yeah so yeah I'm trying to yeah I, I guess it's 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 often difficult maybe where when you have film films where and maybe this is the benefit of it being the third film of the trilogy, where a lot of these characters are not blood relations. They are they have been thrown together. Fellow thrown together in fellowship. Exactly. As they would say. Um, but there are there are these moments of family um, with the character with the character that you just said, the the Denethor. The, yes, him. Uh, Denethor, the one who's kind of this yes. yeah, this kind of corrupt He's and, not the king, is he? He's the guy who pretends to be if, the king. He, that feels like a character that that needs a bit more space to be done justice to. It's a pretty weird caricature of a thing. Because then character. he has a sort of um, mental breakdown yeah. um, and tries to sort of commit suicide. Yeah, and that's kind of almost laughable, that sequence. While also killing his son, who has been told on numerous occasions, in fact, still alive. Um, and then the other... Well, you're going to have to... Where, where the... Um, Oh goodness me! You just need the, to remember one thing, and I'll get you there. But you have to remember something. The uh, <laughs> the killing. Um, I'm not a, a man. I'm a woman. Oh, Eowyn. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. That, that killing the of... Witch King of or whatever his name yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I promise, listeners. I did watch the film. Yes, you did. Lot... But for God's sake, even I can't remember most of the characters. A lot's going on. But um, I love Bernard Hill anyway. Who doesn't love Bernard Hill? Sure. Um, and so his death, his daughter. Yeah, that's a that's a lovely. Old that's that that moment of quiet, which is kind of telegraphed because you're like, well clearly that will happen that's clearly going to but the but it's it's done so well yeah it's done so well and actually i did think towards the end i thought god this film being if, if this film is 20 years old it feels great it looks great the effects are brilliant mm-hmm. they I, yeah i i so i it could have been made could have been made last year this year looks, my, looks my two other quiet moments yes if you'll indulge yes. me uh, when Gandalf describes... So Gandalf and Pippin are kind yep. of being sieged... I know who they are. 
um, the, the, the orcs seem to be threatening to, yes. to, to take over, and Pippin's like, well, "This is it. We're going to die." Yeah, didn't think we'd like Oh no, we won't, well, we won't. And, this is, and he kind of paints a paints a picture of heaven, basically. Right? He says, "Well, no, no, no. We won't die. What we'll do is we'll 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 be killed here, and then death he, will be is the journey." He gives this kind else. of description. It's actually taken from the final uh, few paragraphs of the novel, where where they do go reach this. In Tolkien mythology, you can travel to heaven by boat. Uh, in fact, that's literally what Frodo does uh, at the end of the movie, um, yes. and and that's what that's you know something like white shores, crisp sand, and a far off sunrise, or something like that. So and did Frodo maybe die? Is that all a dream at the well, end? Well, he's, he's, no. he's sort of no. he's sort of dead. He is dead. He is died. He does die. He dies. He sort of commits euthanasia at right, the end right. of the film. Right. <laughs> You're looking at me like, do we? Do I care about this? No, 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 no. Uh, <laughs> but. but but when they sail off in that boat with the elves, yeah, that's them going to the what's called the Undying Lands, which, right. which is basically a kind of a heaven. Heaven. Okay. The elves go to heaven and take Gandalf, who sort of is an angel, and Frodo with them. Okay. So, right. Okay. I just thought they were Tolkien's off. a Roman Catholic. Like. I just no, I, I didn't <laughs> quite know what was happening there. I must admit. Where, sure. Where I mean, you, he, he leaves is all you really yeah, need to know. Yeah. But, that, but those versed in Tolkien not law will know that that is what happens. He's going to the place that Gandalf describes to Pippin in that moment. Because um, according to according to the interweb, sure, uh, I hadn't realised that after the Hobbits return home from the Shire and Sam marries Rosie, yeah, that there's four years passed. Yes. Is that he, there's a line where he says something like oh, right. four years have passed since weather. So top. he's still because I said to you I was thinking about these moments of quite well thinking about moments of quite the yeah. side of, of the, the the pain that he is still under the fact he looks horrendous at the end of the yep. film like he's obviously got some sort of um, trauma and he's working through the yeah. events of he's probably watched again, all three films again post war kind of meditation like, absolutely yeah, he's yeah. the returning male veteran yeah from him and Sam are like there's that line there's that bit it's a pretty cheesy Wizard of Oz I got the Wizard of Oz in uh, you know the, the wake up scene where Frodo wakes up in bed yes and it's oh Gandalf and then they all kind of run in it's a bit like and you were there and you were there and you're there yeah. too kind of I mean uh, I thought I thought he'd already died I thought that was yeah, he yeah, died yeah. Sure. then and there too many endings man uh, anyway okay. um, and there's that lovely little right. but, but in that quite cheesy scene there's that bit where Sam comes in at the end right and Frodo looks at Sam and Sam looks at him and there's a look of like we might not speak ever about what we just did but but yeah. there's a bond that these people don't share I think that's a very kind of Tolkien back from war-esque look yeah because I then thought so they go okay so they depart Middle-earth for the undying lands yeah. um, okay I, un I understand that and we can talk about this off air. This is not interesting. You, you don't need to understand it. I just no. my, my point was about that moment. Is it's a beautiful bit of yeah. It's a bit of it's a bit of lovely description by Tolkien, and it's yeah. nice that they got it into the movies. And it's quite it's quite nice that I like that I like that that little scene, and and the, and that Gandalf kind of provides this moment. There's these it's just quiet little character moments within this all this you know big spectacle that that the films do have. Mm. Even this film in all its imperfections, and I think it's a good movie, but I don't think it's as good as the others. The others balance it better, but they still have these kind of moments of character that are really, really yeah. important. In terms of that trauma, then, so when Sam, it's interesting then that if, this, yeah. if it's interesting that the film begins with um, Andy Serkis in sure. human form and the origin story yes. of Smeagol, it's also interesting. And we talked a bit off air about who you know who is the protagonist yeah, yeah. and. and um, as well, a minute ago. Uh, but so Sam, the film ends with Sam's return to the shine. He even says, "I'm, I'm back." That's the last line, of the which film, is the, yeah. also one of the most unconvincing. "I'm back" because you think, well, actually, as you say, he's he's gone through some things with Frodo, and I don't. 
there is a trauma here that is not yeah. there. What is it? Shell shock that he is not going to get himself. So I found the ending really. I found ending interesting for two reasons. One, I made, finally made the link between the rings and the Hobbit doors. <laughs> the Hobbit sure, doors. sure, sure, sure. I was like, oh, God, they're rings as well. Yeah. And also the ending with Sam and the sort of his family and his children, that felt quite hollow as well because I thought there are some things that have gone on. In, in a good way, right? Well, 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 I don't know. Actually, maybe that's it. Because obviously, we should get onto this. Now, is, is the whole too many endings criticism of, of Return yeah. of the King? No, I, I guess if if he's gone through all of this stuff with Frodo, and there is that shared look of the two, of the bond that the two of them have shared that the others will never know. Um, and Gandalf probably has an idea of, and Gandalf then takes Frodo. I didn't read that as as to death. I just read that as a he's off, but he's fine. Yeah. He's de- then you've got Sam, who is quite quite fragile I thought and when he said I'm back I was yeah. like I'm not sure you are you're not sure you are uh, anyway that was my no well I, I think that is I think again like a, a, the the, alter, the 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 copies of Tolkien and their endless numbers that have come since and I love a lot of them Willow's a lovely copy of Tolkien okay. but those films always end with I'm back now we're, but let's have a party um, as if all of that and, and what I think is that I, I mean I think the the final 15 minutes does test everyone's patience because it's yeah. been a long movie yeah. and there are some not very well executed moments in it but I think it's trying to communicate something that I think is really worth communicating which is that there is no go that you know that it's that kind of it's it's the film doesn't end triumphantly it ends tragically yes yes, yes, um, yes absolutely it, Frodo there's what is it there's a few just small little lines and Frodo says we we, we set out to save the Shire and we did save the Shire but not for me. Mm. As if, you know, we set out to, to save this little patch of innocence and we have saved it, but I can no longer... At what cost? Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that's good. I think that's... Because, again, talking about morality, there's an interesting question it asks of, like, well, should Frodo have ever gone? Because he was never... He could never save... He almost... He, he, ne- he was never going to save the Shire because he... By going, he... He doomed himself. There's a there's a lot of that kind of language in the in the film, but the, the journey home. I don't think there is going to be one. Yeah, I don't there's think a lot of that. Uh, and 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 I think that's a really intri- I think I think it's really nuanced and, and rich because I think it it asks questions of. I think you you know the answer is he still should have gone. I think is what the film is saying. Yeah. It's but it's tragic he had to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think again, post-war meditation. I won't say it anymore, but I think that's a that's a that's a great bit. Um, uh, very quickly, love the bit where they're lying on Mount Doom, uh, Frodo and Sam, um, and they think I think they think they're about to be engulfed by lava. Um, oh no, it's just before they go and destroy the ring, and he's saying, "Can you remember the taste of strawberries? Can't. Can you remember the taste of strawberries and the sound of um, you know?" And there's that little uh, kind of whistle on the on you know the, the the Frodo kind of Hobbit theme. You can just hear it in the background of this kind of doom laden soundtrack, and I think Shaw Howard Shaw's score is really effective in that moment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, that and then that's partnered with you're right that there's that scene. Can you remember? And then yeah. where they. Think they're about to be a golf with yes, that's and right. then he says, "I can now remember. Yeah, I can, I can see the Shire. I can, and it's yeah. obviously like the first time he's thought about it for ages." And yeah, yeah, brilliant. No, no, I thought. Do yeah. you have any more bits, or should we call that? No, I mean, I, I, I did think the kind of that part. Uh, was it the paths of the dead? Those kind of ghostly apparitions. The yeah, movie. I thought, that, I thought that was quite fun because oh, you I like just, that. Okay, I just, I, I just wasn't. I mean, it's obviously you know digital effects heavy, but I just thought, oh, that's. In, I wasn't expecting that as a. Um, we, and we also haven't really talked about the color. The, co- the colours of these films, this one's very green. Mm-hmm. There's lots of green and, and then towards the end bright orange. I don't know. They're, they're, 
I would have to rewatch them again if I've got a spare couple of years. I'll yeah. rewatch. Them. And yellow, actually, like the yellow yeah. of the ring really burns. The yellow of the ring and the yellow of Sauron. I think actually, very quickly, we talked about orcs evil equals. Um, sorry, uh, ugliness equals evil yeah. is kind of the, the the phantasmic with a pH equation that the film offers, right? Yep. The kind of fantasy logic of evil equals ugliness. But there's an equally, there's a counterbalance to that, which is a similar act, which is the, the beauty of the ring is evil. Yes, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. That, that can't look away. You know, it's so beautiful that it's evil, right? So there's, there's a similar counterbalancing phantasmical thing going on there as well. Um, Perfect. Wow. Well, I almost, I almost feel like, I almost feel like we're returning to the Shire after, after um, all that podcasting, Chris. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm glad you came through it with me. I'm sorry to have dragged you too much into sword and sorcery, but um, I think these, just to sort of, uh, these movies were really important shaping yes. of my own academic identity. Um, you know, I don't think I necessarily, I wasn't just these movies, but you know, I was at the right age at the right time um, for these movies to come along, and it's been fun to. I mean, I've written about them before and things, but it's been fun to revisit them with you and talk through. Particularly this one. I haven't seen this one quite as much as no. the others. Um, I really liked and it. Yeah, really good. Liked I, I, for those who've not seen... Well, why on earth are you still listening? But for those who've not seen him for a while, I should say, um, they're worth a revisit. They're worth a rewatch because there are bits in this movie that feel like the cliche that people think these films are, but actually they're, as hopefully we've picked through in all these episodes, there's lots more nuance and interest and mm. richness between all the hobbits and the wizards and the Absolutely. trolls. Um, yes. Cool. All right. Yes, um, so, yes, well, if you have any more thoughts on the Lord of Rings, those are ours. Yes. But if you have any more, you can, of course, um, suggest a blog post or write to us asking for a footnote episode at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M, research at gmail.com. You can find the list of our archive, well, you can find the archive of our blog and podcast on our website, fantasy-animation.org, as well as wherever you get your podcasts. Um... You can follow us on all social media platforms with the same handle, Fananim Research, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research. Um, and I think that's probably enough plugging. So yeah, um, we'll see you next time in another world um, of fantasy and animation. <laughs> Bye.